right, um, time for the main message this morning. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And we'll read from verses 1 to 12 as we uh, look at the biggest wedding of all. We're looking at the subject of weddings today. And we're looking at the biggest wedding, the most important wedding ever. John chapter 2, verse 1. Let's have a read of that. Let's have a see what it says there. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, uh, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, uh, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. And this, and after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Let's go, go take these things to the Lord. Let's commit this time to him this morning. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and the miracles that he did and the teachings that he shared. We ask for your blessings upon us now as we seek to understand his ways and his teaching. And we pray that your, your spirit would teach us this morning from your word, that we might grow through it and glorify you as a result. We thank you once again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yeah, growing up uh, from an Italian background, uh, some of the most vivid memories that I have growing up during my uh, younger years was that of weddings. Um, and it seemed almost uh, every week or every second week there was a wedding that we would attend um, with my family. I remember getting together, all those times being very special because it was an opportunity for us to get together with relatives and cousins and friends and, <clears throat> and there'd be music and dancing, mainly Italian type of dancing. The, there were festivities and regular and, and all these different things that were, were coming about as a result of that specific occasion. An Italian wedding, especially during the, uh, the 80s and 90s, was never a small affair either. You're talking hundreds of people. Normally, three or four hundred people were not uncommon uh, to have at a wedding reception. You got to see relatives from all over the country. You know, it's maybe the one time uh, in the year, or the or a few times in that year when they would um, when they would come and visit and spend time together. And speeches were made, and telegrams were read out. For those of you who remember what telegrams are, and there were cakes that were cut, and children running around, dance floors, and all over the place, and you know, food coming out of your ears, and normally four or five courses with prawns and fruit and cheese platters and ice cream and all those types of things and many of the um, tastes and sounds and experiences still stick with me quite vividly today. And these were Italian weddings um, uh, celebrated in Australia and they were quite particular to Australia from uh, Italians that had come from overseas, migrants that had come from overseas and it was pretty unique to hear because back in Italy they were quite a different scenario again. They weren't, um, they were while the Italians that came over to Australia had developed their own sort of culture around weddings, those in Italy had gone a slightly different way. But some of the most intriguing weddings and memorable, most memorable weddings that, uh, that we uh, uh, had a chance to partake in or, or be part of um, were mixed marriages. And I mean, like, you know, when you when you, you, just, you knew already your own culture, you knew your own weddings and what they were like. 
But when Italians married a, an Italian married a Greek or a Maltese or a Lebanese or even an, uh, an Anglo-Saxon, it was just amazing because you'd be there looking at the different ways that these things, uh, or the way they would celebrate an actual wedding. And the, the culture and the customs would come out and it was funny when you, th- when you think about it because normally a, um, uh, the, the wedding ceremony itself was normally uh, you know, taking place in a church. But the reception would take place in you know, some, some reception place. And normally half of the reception or one side of the hall, which was separated by normally a dance floor, would be one of the cultures and the other side would be the other culture. And then you'd have to have um, the music from each side. And some of those things are just quite uh, interesting to watch. Um, it was amazing to see. And we'd be there with, with our eyes wide open, especially when we were younger and experiencing these things for the first or second time, the way the other people would celebrate the wedding. I remember some of the most memorable ones were when you'd have a Greek um, uh, uh, wedding or Greek married an Italian or a Calabrian, which is which is where my family was essentially from. Um, the Calabrians have quite strong uh, cultures and cultural things around weddings, especially dancing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, at the end of the evening, you'd have almost like a, a dance-off because the Greeks were quite passionate about their dancing. And so... The, the, the poor band that was playing, they'd play an Italian one and a song and then they'd play a, a Greek one and the Greeks would be there waving, waving their hankies around and, and dancing around in their circles and then the Italians would dance and it'd be a bit like a, a, bit like a, uh, a marriage dance-off. Um, I'm not sure if you know, the, the Zorba, most of you know the Zorba, but it, in, during, during weddings, the Zorba would get faster and faster and faster, and they'd dance faster and faster, and the, the Calabrians had their, what they would call the Tarantella, and they would do a similar type of dancing, where, where people would like line up in circles and dance like that. But it was just an extraordinary time, and a lot of those memories still stick with me, um, even now. Um, but we realised, growing up, that whether it was Italians, Greeks, or you know Anglo-Saxons, or Lebanese, or Indians, or whoever whoever it was, the results of that celebration was always the same. The focus was always the same. It was the joining, the celebrate, the celebration of two people joining together to begin a whole new life together. Weddings were indeed and are beautiful things, absolutely beautiful things. They are absolute times to celebrate. Uh, And every culture in the world has a concept of marriage and has a wedding ceremony. And it tells us that um, God is the author of marriage. God is the one who created it. Um, And it's evident in every culture throughout all time and the celebration of a man and a woman getting together and uh, marrying so they can then begin their own family and begin their own journey together is something that's celebrated still around the world today. It's a bit difficult at the moment uh, during uh, COVID lockdowns to have weddings uh, like that. But our prayer is that uh, the restrictions will be lifted soon and um, we can continue to enjoy um, our cultural weddings as uh, as they've been handed down to us. Um, the Jews living in Jesus' day and the Jews indeed living today have also very strong cultural um, uh, norms around weddings, very strong um, uh, traditions around them. Uh, for Jews, especially in Jesus' day, a wedding would last not just for a day, but it would literally last for days and days. Uh, and I understand even with the, in the Indian culture, a wedding is a huge affair and can last a week. Um, and it's a celebration of not just the ceremony, but also the beginning of a new life together. Uh, in fact, uh, in most cultures, a wedding is not just a private affair, but is, is an, actually a whole community affair the whole community gets involved and and becomes a witness to those vows and those promises that are made one to another and the beginning of that that new uh, life uh, as a married couple. 
um, the marriage ceremony was so holy to Jews and is still so holy that they believe God um, smiles down or shines down upon weddings so much that they even believe that sins are forgiven as a result of the, the marriage ceremony, that God somehow imparts grace and forgiveness upon the couple and even those possibly even associated with them um, as a result of this particular time. God loves it so much and is pleased by it so much. Um, as we have read already in this, uh, this morning's uh, sermon, um, the first place that we see Jesus even perform a miracle was at a wedding. And that wedding in Cana, it was the first place that God chose to record a miracle that Jesus performed. And what was it about? It was about so they could actually continue to enjoy the festivities around that celebration. They ran out of wine and Jesus made more of it so they could continue to celebrate. God started marriage. God loves marriage and he loves weddings. And today's um, uh, messages about that, that really earthly marriage and weddings are a picture that God has given us of his marriage to us. And I'll, I'll share some of this with you as we, we're going along today, but I just want to give you that's a, bit of a, a bit of a glimpse as to what's coming up. Um, we know that God instituted marriage. He started that way back in the garden. With, the, with our first parents, the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve. And Jesus tells us that in Mark chapter 10. So in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 9, he says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then, they are no more twain, which is two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus, God's concept of a marriage is that it's permanent. It's the permanent uniting of two people into one, into one identity. And our belief, what we believe as Christians about marriage comes from the Bible. The teaching on faithful monogamy comes from the Bible. Even though we see people in the Bible not always follow that particular command. But God, the Bible says, is the one who originally made us male and female. And it is God who has put within us the desire to want to come together. Just as Adam and Eve were also joined together in the beginning. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 and 24. God had brought all these different animals to Adam to name. Apparently did a very good job of it too. Named a whole lot of animals, gave them names. So God made God gave Adam obviously a very creative uh, ability to be able to name animals. But he named them all. And at the end of it, essentially said, but none was found that was suitable for him. Okay, so God then put Adam to sleep. Make, make, it takes a rib, creates uh, Eve, and then um, wakes them up both. And Adam beholds for the first time this perfect partner that God had made for him. And Genesis 2.23 says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Uh, what's interesting about this particular passage and what led up to it is that in every day that God created something in the world, the Bible says that he looked back at his handiwork after day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and he looks back and he says, that it was good. He was happy with his handiwork. So when God created light, he looked at it and said, that's good. When he created the land and the seas and the plants and the trees, he looked back on them at the end of the day and said, that's good. When he created the sun, the moon, the stars and the planets to give us days and months and years and seasons, he looked back at them and said, they're good. 
When God filled the seas with fish and other aquatic animals and the, sky, the skies with birds, he looked back and he said, that's good. And finally, when he filled the, the, the world with animals and insects and finally made Adam, he looked back and he said, that's good. And then God had a rest on the seventh day, which we still commemorate today. And when he looked at man, for the first time, we see in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 18, the first time we see that God says something is not good. He looks at man, and poor man's there by himself. So all the animals have got their partners, and they're all going around, and they're uh, uh, having their own families. And he looks at man, and he says in, um, in verse 18 of chapter 2, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Okay, well, that essentially means a help suitable for him, someone who is like him. So God does the design man, obviously, and, and he forms woman, and he made both of them to be perfectly compatible with each other, to compatible in such a way that they could be joined together permanently. They were created not to be the same, but to complement each other. God's plan from the beginning was that that union would last a lifetime. In fact, God created Adam and Eve to be eternal beings, but we know that after they fell, that death came into the actual scene. So when God looked, when, uh, when, um, when Adam sees his partner for the first time, I'd say he was pretty happy with what he saw. And, but the Lord says, and they, sh- they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What, what therefore God hath joined together, uh, let no man put asunder. When Jesus, when Jesus taught spiritual truths, he often used concepts in his day that people very readily recognize. So he often he's spoken about houses and, you know, women who were sweeping floors to find coins. And he'd be speaking about agriculture and tree, the way trees grow. And he'd be speaking about life and family. The examples he gave, especially in parables, revolved around concepts that they readily understood, and marriage was one of those. Jesus refers to marriage a number of times because people were very well acquainted with marriage. From the, the highest of, of uh, in terms of the, uh, the riches or pe- someone who was well off in society, to the poorest, everyone knew what marriage was about. And Jesus taught that marriage was a picture of God's ultimate plan of love toward mankind. You know, this is an incredible mystery, the Bible says, and points to an unbelievable spiritual truth, that God's plan was to join himself permanently to mankind forever as an act of love. And marriage is a picture that he created for that very reason. When the Apostle Paul gives instructions on how husbands and wives are to be toward each other, he concludes the teaching with a very interesting thought. In the passage we had in our scripture reading today, Paul begins with how or what a woman should focus on in the marriage, what she has been called to do. Obviously, she's called to do a lot of other things as well, but he focuses on one thing. So if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 in your Bibles, we'll have a look at what he says there towards the wives and what their obligations are towards their husbands. So, in Ephesians 5.22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. doesn't say to submit themselves to every other man and every other, every other husband. Only submit yourself to your own husband as unto the Lord, though, as, as you were with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, the husband, in verse 23, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So Paul speaks of the submission of a wife towards her husband as a picture of the church's submission towards Jesus Christ. Now, that's quite a tall ask, if you think about it, for a woman to submit herself and view her husband like the way the church views Christ. For a wife knows all of the faults, weaknesses that her husband has. Uh, and as Genesis seems to indicate, 
her desire or the weakness that she may have might be toward possibly taking control of that relationship. You know, women have, as I've said before, God, when God made women and men, he made them to complement each other. He didn't make them exactly the same. He gave women certain skills <clears throat> which put them at a certain advantage over men in certain situations. And sometimes um, women have a, a tendency to take advantage of that. Okay, Men have their own problems. Women sometimes have this problem. Men tend to be better at seeing a bigger picture. But it often, but it, what it seems like God has done is that he's made women better at noticing fine details. And this is the way the Lord has made us. So a, a, a wise husband should realize that his wife is better at certain things than he, that he is and value her more because of that. He should look at what complements himself with what she has and then treasure her for those very things. Um, but from a woman's perspective, she is to honor her husband and understand that he has been called and given certain responsibilities by God, which are quite serious responsibilities. And her job is to support him in that with the strengths that she has. With all that said, her goal should be to submit herself and honor her husband, even as Christ honors Sorry, the church, the church honors Christ. That's a pretty lofty goal. That's a pretty tall order or a, a very high ask for women. Because as I've said before, women, a wife, knows full well the weaknesses of her husband. So it's more easy to focus on someone's weaknesses than their strengths or help them overcome their weaknesses. Um, but what about the men? What are they being called to do? Well, if the women have been asked for quite a uh, quite a, 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 a difficult task, in verse 25 he says, well, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He, he sacrificed himself for it. In verse 26 he says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. All right. Women, you think you've got a, you've got a, a difficult uh, order there? What about the man? Now, men are called to love their wives with a love comparable to the love that Jesus has for the church. And how did Jesus ultimately show that love? He allowed himself to be crucified for it. What type of love is that? A self-sacrificial love. A love that puts the other person before themselves. Um, why? So that it says in this particular scripture, it says that she might be perfect in every possible way. So that she is spotless, glorious, without defect. That tells me that the goal of a husband is to give his sacrifice himself so that the wife can be everything that God has called for her to be. He bears the responsibility for her, for her to be perfect. He carries that burden. He bears a responsibility for her spiritual growth through the Word of God by ministering to her needs. Now, speaking of tall asks, that is one tall ask. That one ranks right up there. Husbands, you have an extraordinary goal and challenge that God has put before you, that every effort needs to be made for you to support your wife, that she can be everything that she can be that God has made her. <laughs> God hasn't given either of us uh, easy jobs to do. But if we focus on those things, God will bless us immensely. Um, and if you think about it, if we did obey those things perfectly, if women obeyed, perfectly and men obeyed 
perfectly. Those things which God has called us in this marriage, and things, this thing he calls marriage, can you imagine what types of marriage that we would have? So let's aim and strive for those things. Let's love each other, husbands and wives, in absolute perfect sense. Okay? All right. Let's, let's see how Paul can now continues and concludes this particular uh, subject on marriage. He's spoken to the women or the wives. He's spoken to the husbands. Now he says and continues in verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 5, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. No man hates himself, but nourishes it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So the Lord nourishes the church. He, 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 he cherishes it. He, he, he treasures it. Okay? And that's the way the man is supposed to be towards the woman. His, his, his goal is to nourish and cherish her. Verse 30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members of his body, already counted as part of him, as part of his body. Verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. And then he says in verse 32, This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. This great mystery is about Christ and the church. So he says in verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Paul finishes with a spiritual principle, with a, what he calls a great mystery. That a man leaves his father and his mother because God has built them that way. He leaves his father and his mother and he joins himself to his wife and they become one flesh. And what Paul is saying is that, you know what? But I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. So marriage is a picture of something absolutely bigger, more grander in scope than what the, a, a, a simple man and a woman coming together is. The marriage of God the Son to the church. Verse 32, this is a great mystery. Hmm. Now, if this is talking about Christ and the church, what's that got to do with a husband, you know, a man leaving his father and mother? When did Christ leave? He left heaven to come to earth for his bride. In order to be joined to us, the Bible says that he left, got off his throne, left his father in heaven, came to the earth on a mission to redeem his wife. And in order to do that, he became one of us. For only two people can get married. Do you remember all the animals being brought to Adam? None of those could marry Adam. None of them were suitable for Adam. God had to make one that was, that was exactly compatible with him. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. So Jesus, the Son of God, became one of us. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, that we might be joined together with him. Destined to become perfect like him. Now the Bible says that he cherishes us, his church. And his goal is to nourish us, to build us up so that we can be everything that God has planned for us to be. That's his goal. And we, as we have seen in previous weeks, are destined to become glorified like him. So just as he is glorified now, we will be like him so that we will be united forever. We can view the story of the salvation of mankind as the grand story of God's love for us. It's a love story. And the actions of a man who seeks to marry a woman that he loves, that he goes to an extraordinary length to win her to himself. I'd like to examine some of the Jewish customs of marriage as Jesus would have understood them in his day and the people around him would have understood when he was sharing these things with him. And some of, the, uh, and some of these customs and traditions 
will maybe bring to light and open up your understanding some Bible passages about what Jesus was speaking about. And you may be surprised by some of these if you haven't heard them before. When a, when a man wanted to marry a woman in Jewish custom in Jesus' day, the prospective bridegroom would travel to the prospective bride's home and ask for her hand in marriage. Obviously, there was an interaction that took place. He was asking for a hand in marriage. Obviously, the, the her and her parents had, would, would have had to agree. But there was also a price to be paid by the groom to prove that he was an okay sort of guy. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came from heaven to earth to find us and paid with his own life to show us what sort of a guy he actually was for us. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are bought with a price. What price is that? Well, you know what? Christ gave his whole life for us on that cross to show us what type of prospective husband he is. He gave his whole life for us that we might be redeemed. Matthew 13, 45 and 46 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man. So most of you know this, the parable of the great, the pearl of great price. But have a listen to this, and you may, may not have heard it this particular way. In Matthew 13, 45, it says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Okay, so the merchant man is seeking for good and precious pearls. Verse 46 says, Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You know that's a picture of? That's a picture of Jesus who gave his entire life for the pearl of price, which is us. He valued us as a pearl of great price. And he went and gave everything he had that he might win us to himself. It's not about us having to win Christ. No, no, this is he who has won us. So the man or the prospective husband or the bridegroom goes to the woman's home, asks for a hand in marriage, <clears throat> gives the or shows the prospective family what, what he's worth and what he's capable of, that he can support this woman, that he can be a good husband to her. Obviously, there'll be discussions about you know what type of family he's from, what his background is, what he does, or whatever else it is. And if everything goes well, a covenant's made, an agreement is made. And he says that, and, and we know that everyone, that upon that agreement being taken place, upon them saying, yes, we agree, a marriage covenant was established which really is what an engagement ceremony is. An engagement ceremony involved in those days drinking from a cup of wine along with a covenant benediction, a blessing. You know what Jesus did? Well, we know that he came to the earth to win us. You know what that last supper was? It was that time of benediction. It was that engagement ceremony. It was a new testament or covenant between God and man. God was doing something new. What was it? God was telling us that he wanted to be betrothed to us. And he invited us to be betrothed to him. In Matthew 26, verse 26, have a listen to these words. Okay, Now think of the marriage or the engagement ceremony that would take place once they had agreed. Matthew 26, 26 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, the new agreement, the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Look at that. Jesus says, you know, there's going to come a day. I'm not going to drink any more of this wine until that day when we are together in my Father's kingdom. There's our engagement ceremony. There's the promise that one day we are going to celebrate together and drink together in the new kingdom when we are 
united again. So that's the engagement ceremony. So after the engagement ceremony, what happened? Well, once they agreed, once they'd had the blessing, once they'd had this uh, this uh, benediction together and the uh, and this new covenant, this agreement between the families and between the two betrothed, it says that we know by tradition that the male would then return back to his father's property, and what would he begin doing? The Bible says that, and the tradition says that he would begin building a home for them, and he would only return to see his bride again when the house was finished and when his father said off you go the groom would build a house normally attached to his father's home which is what makes john chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 so special for us because jesus says to his disciples that he was about to leave them in uh, in john chapter 14 see the last supper Jesus had to comfort his disciples because at that particular time, he said to them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. I'll be crucified. And he was comforting them. All right. And then after that, he was telling them, this is what's going to happen. But in verse verse one of chapter 14, he said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Look what he says. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's exactly what would happen in a marriage in Jewish custom. The son would go, be betrothed. He would go back to his father's place and spend his time, sometimes 12 months or more, preparing a house. And when the house was ready, the next part was he would come back for his bride. And during the time that he was preparing his home, or preparing the new home that they were going to live in, the, the prospective wife, the betrothed, would be preparing herself and keeping herself pure. Now, listen to the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Okay, Like, like a father who's, who's, who's jealous for his children. He goes, For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul the Apostle, who led these believers, the Corinthians, to the Lord, says he was like a jealous father over his, over his child that he, who he had betrothed to Jesus Christ. They were espoused to that husband, to Jesus, to Jesus. And he says his goal was to present them to Christ as a, a chaste virgin, as a pure virgin. So we have the church. We have the, the, the prospective wife preparing herself for this time, preparing uh, for a life that would come, that would change as a result of him coming back to take her to be with him for married life. So then the, the groom, there comes a time when the house is ready, she's prepared and, and he's going to head back. What ends up happening? Well, the, well, tradition tells us that he would lead, the groom would lead a procession through the streets of the town toward the bride's home. And that would come sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes any time, and they'd have to be ready for him. And he would be there with his, with his best men and, and all that sort of stuff, and they, they, would, they would lead a procession through the streets toward them. And at this particular time, they'd be dressed like royalty. The groom would be dressed like a prince in the finest robes that he could find. The bride was also adorned with jewellery and whatever they could, they could give her to make her look absolutely resplendent. Because this was the time, this was the time of rejoicing. This was the time of redemption. This was the time when the marriage would be fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
my soul shall, uh, shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. One day, the Bible says, the Son of God will come back to take his bride to be home with him forever. And the Bible teaches us that there will be an incredible marriage celebration. Those who have accepted Jesus' proposal for salvation and redemption of an eternal and, and an eternal relationship will be taken home to rejoice together with God forever. This is the amazing story of love that God has shown for mankind. And even though the world has fallen in sin, and even though we were never worthy to be called to be a royal uh, uh, wife, God has redeemed us from sin and from death and has said to us, no, you're the one that I want. So we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, advice to us who are waiting for that day. And while we wait, we may go through tribulations and trials in this world. But Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, the day that the procession starts and he comes to take us home with him, shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine the day that we're waiting here as the betrothed of Christ, when Christ returns for us, his church, and we are transported up to heaven to meet him in the air and to go back to the father's house you see that's what would happen they would meet the 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 betrothed would uh, the, the the husband would come to the wife's home they'd call her out she would come out with her bridal party with the with the virgins that with the um with her bridesmaids and they would come out meet with him and then they'd all walk back to the the father's house where they would have the ceremony that's a picture of what's going to happen to us as Christians and for those who have accepted God's invitation to us for salvation. Our entry into heaven and the celebration there will be absolutely extraordinary. It will be grander than the biggest celebration you could ever imagine. And that story of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, uh, if you've ever wondered about that, is telling of the bridal party, those who were supposed to be ready for the coming of the groom at that midnight hour. The virgins are not the ones getting married. The virgins are the bridesmaids of the bride. And they're there to support the bride and to, and to, and to help her during that time. You know, this is signs God's sign of an unending love. You know, you know, after sharing, oh, performed a number of weddings and wedding ceremonies and, and marriages in uh, over the last 14 years or so. Now, after sharing um, uh, the vows together, we in our custom normally sh then share wedding rings. We there is an exchange of wedding rings that takes place um, at the end of the actual, um, towards the end of the ceremony. And these are a symbol of a bride and a, and a husband's unending, and a bride and a groom's unending love for each other. That's, that's the whole point, okay? Um, so what, what, um, what symbol has Christ, does Christ have for his unending love? Well, the Bible tells us that he has some very special symbols, about his unending love for us. You see, when Christ rose from the grave, 
the Bible says that he was he had yet to be glorified, but he rose again, he conquered death, which is which is the hope that we have in him. But he yet had the marks of the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and even where the spear was thrust in his side, in that where that rib was. Okay. And our understanding is that he still bears those marks today. The symbols of Christ's unending love for us and the thing that shows us that he is faithful to us is not a ring that can be taken off and put on, but the marks that he bears on his own body forever for our sake to show us forever the love that he had for us and he continues to have toward us. Now the question is, could he have removed those marks from his body? Surely, uh, for those of us who are looking forward to being resurrected one day, we're not looking forward to being resurrected with ailments that we have now. Or if you're missing a finger or something like that, you're not going to have the finger in heaven or, or some other type of ailment. No, the Bible tells us that we are going to be perfect. And we have every reason to believe that to be true. Yet Christ made a conscious decision to keep the marks on him, to show us one day when he returns, we will recognize him by those very marks, that he is the true Christ. The Antichrist will not have those marks. The Antichrist will not bear that an ending symbol of love as Jesus has. The Bible tells us that one day he will come back and take us home, his bride, to be with him in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. So we have weddings, a wedding right back at the beginning when God created Adam and Eve. And we have a wedding that goes right to the end of the Bible. In Revelation 19, 6, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. The Bible describes the new Jerusalem also uh, looking like a bride adorned with the jewels that a, a bride was used to, to wearing in those days. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, you know, that home that Jesus is building for us, that new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's part of a marriage vow that is absolutely critical that says that a lot, the love that someone has for someone or the, the covenant they make with that, with that other person shall be till death do us part. It's meant to be a permanent bond, a permanent marriage, a permanent union between two people. Well, what about us and God? Well, the answer is that we will never die. The union between the Son of God and the bride will never ever end. We will never ever die because he lives forever. We will live together forever with him. And Revelation, I love the way it, I love the way it finishes Revelation. It says, "In the Spirit and the Bride, it's us. Say, come, and let the one hearing say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and he willing, let him take of the water of life freely." There's an anticipation for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ as their as their Savior and as their Lord for His return. For those of you who have 
been saved today by his grace and by his love and by the fact that he died for your sins on the cross, there is an excitement that you can have and should have because one day he, as our bridegroom, is coming for us in the clouds to take us home to be with him. When that wonderful home that he is building is fully complete and adorned in all perfection, the father will say, go home and get your bride. Go and get your bride and bring her home. And that's exactly what will happen. There is a wonderful wedding that's coming up. The salvation that we enjoy is part of an unbelievable marriage that has taken place that God himself has become a human, permanently wedded to humanity, that he might be joined to us forever. Let me ask you this morning, have you accepted the engagement proposal of the Son of God? Are you betrothed to him and looking forward to the day when he will come again? To take you home to be with him. Are you looking forward to that celebration? He will never let you down. What he has done for us already shows us how much he loves us. And his love never ever diminishes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. We are the bride. And God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That life is being married to God. That life is being transformed to be like him. This morning, I want to invite you to accept that marriage proposal if you haven't already. God loves you so much. He wants to redeem you and save you and give you a whole new life. And our job is to help you and encourage you to that. So God bless you all. Remember who our betrothed is. Keep your minds on him. And remember always that God's love is eternal. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day.